Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the History of Byzantium. Episode 52, The Non-Siege of Constantinople. In putting together this podcast, I'm always striving for accuracy. Considering the biased and ancient nature of the sources we're dealing with, it can be a fruitless task. But I don't want you to think that this podcast is simply me summarizing an old history book. I take time to read as much as I possibly can, including any and all up-to-date scholarship in English. Unfortunately, the more I read about the 7th century, the less coherent the narrative becomes. Since the last episode, I've been able to read an excellent book by Oxford historian James Howard Johnston. He examines every available source for the 7th century, including Greek, Syriac, and Arabic histories, to try and find the potentially vital facts amidst the legend and exaggeration. He does a good job, for example, of analysing where Nicephorus and Theophanes, our main Byzantine writers, get their information. One of these sources is a history we no longer have, by Theophilus of Edessa, a Christian court astrologer who worked for the Caliph al-Mahdi in the 8th century. From Theophilus's account, another potential cause for the murder of Constance II emerges. The suggestion is that Constance's move to Sicily was deliberately antagonizing to the Muslims. Why? Because the Muslim occupation of Egypt would never be safe until they controlled the sea lanes to Africa. Remember that Heraclius and Nicetus had launched their civil war against Phocus by sailing from Carthage to Alexandria. So apparently the Arabs viewed Constance's army in Sicily as the precursor to a reinvasion of Egypt. It's an understandable conclusion to draw, given that the first thing the emperor commissioned back when he was a teenager was the reoccupation of Alexandria. If that was Constance's plan, then it must have been a long-term one, because his forces were not nearly strong enough to take on that task at the time of his death. However, that's not relevant to the story we get from Theophilus. 
What emerges there is that when Saborius, the commander of the Armenia Khan theme, rebelled and sought help from Muawiyah, he was not alone. There may have been a sort of peace party emerging who plotted to overthrow the emperor. This conspiracy would have included Armenians and Iberians, together with various members of the Constantinople court, all of whom wanted peace with the Arabs. The Christians of the Caucasus were facing domination and possibly occupation by the Arabs, and some amongst them felt Constance was making this scenario more likely by continuing the war. In this version of events, Constance's assassination was discussed with the caliph, who gave his approval for the plan. Word was then sent to the cooperative chamberlain who murdered the emperor. Unfortunately, in the meantime, Saborius fell off his horse and died. Hence the decision to proclaim Mazizius as emperor. He was Armenian, if you recall, and therefore might have been sympathetic to the plot. The loyal troops of Constance then put down this usurper, not realising the full extent of the conspiracy. It's a fascinating idea, particularly the angle that the caliph was in on the assassination of his opposite number, but true or not, it doesn't alter our story too much. It clearly wasn't Muawiyah's idea, and if you read the story cynically, the caliph never intended to support Saborius as his puppet emperor. Instead, he nodded along at the plot in the hopes that it would throw the Romans into chaos so that he could continue his efforts to conquer them. However, here again, we're unsure of exactly what Moawiyah really wanted. Was he determined to overthrow the Roman Empire, or were his motives more nuanced? He had emerged victorious from the First Muslim Civil War, in part because of the strength of his Syrian army, rather than, say, winning a convincing argument about his right to rule the caliphate. There were many who were bitter about his role in overthrowing Ali. It's possible that the caliph felt he needed to win great victories over the Romans in order to leave a legacy as the great spreader of Islam, rather than the man who crushed the son-in-law of Muhammad. The Syrian army's effectiveness and loyalty were also based in part on their continuous campaigning. The booty they brought home lined their pockets and attracted new recruits, and maybe that was why the attacks on Byzantium continued at such a pace. Whether or not the caliph seriously intended to capture Constantinople is key to today's episode, and as we go forward we will be delving back into source criticism, which I know is not always as fun as a simple narrative, but bear with me. It's the summer of 669, a year after Constance II's murder. The troops in Sicily are making their way home to Constantinople at the order of the new emperor, Constantine IV, who we will get to in a moment. Meanwhile, out in Anatolia, there is a Muslim force who spent the winter on imperial territory. These are the men who Muawiyah had dispatched to support Saborius's attempt on the throne. And they were not alone. I mentioned last time that the men of the Armenia Khan theme had returned to their posts after Saborius's death. Well, most of them did. The senior officers would not be forgiven for treason as quickly as the average foot soldier. 
Knowing that they faced only execution if they returned home, these men, possibly a few thousand strong, were now stuck on the Arab side. This combined force was soon joined by part of the army of Syria, led by Muawiyah's son, Yazid. With the Opsikion troops still en route from Sicily, Yazid's men were able to raid all the way to Chalcedon. On their way home, they captured the fortress city of Amorium and left a garrison of a few thousand men behind. Amorium would soon after be the home base of the Anatolikon theme, which should give you some idea of its importance. Yazid withdrew himself back to Syria and, according to recent scholarship, took Saborius's men with him and settled them near Antioch. The question is, was the garrisoning of Amorium an attempt to begin preparations for a siege of Constantinople? or merely the installation of a raiding party who could do some damage the next spring. That particular garrison won't be part of our answer, though. With the Obsequion troops back at the capital that winter, the emperor dispatched them to Amorium, and with snow aiding their climb over the walls, the Roman troops stormed the city and slaughtered the Arab garrison. A good start, you could say, to the reign of Constantine the Fourth. Constance's eldest son. Constantine IV was born in Constantinople around 648. As I mentioned last episode, there is no consensus on the exact date, but I'm going to say he was 20 years old when he became Roman Emperor. We know very little about his upbringing in the palace or his early character though I have posted several coins on the website and Facebook so you can get a look at what he might have looked like. We know even less about his younger brothers, Heraclius and Tiberius, but they must have been several years younger, as there is no suggestion at this stage that they should have any say in government. Young Constantine inherited a war with the Arabs that had been essentially continuous for over 30 years. However, it still wasn't clear to anyone what the future would hold. As I mentioned at the beginning, it's possible that Constantine's father had still harboured dreams of retaking Egypt. In theory, if the Romans could retake the land of the Nile, then the revenues of that country could pay for a sustained effort to push the Arabs out of the Near East. Although they had resumed their annual raiding, the Muslims had still not broken through the Taurus or Armenian mountains to establish permanent beachheads beyond them. So although things looked bleak, it was still possible to believe that a Roman recovery was the next chapter in this story. I say that only to help orient us to Constantine's worldview. It was not a foreshadowing of what's to come. Over the next few years, Moawiyah would continue his relentless pressure on the Byzantines. In that same year, 669, as the troops in Sicily headed home the Arabs renewed their attacks on Africa. Constance's work to stiffen the local defences seems to have had some effect, but the Arabs continued to build their own garrison town, from which they would aim to conquer the whole area. The town was called Al-Kairawan, the caravan, and still stands today as a major city in Tunisia. An Arab fleet also made an attack on Syracuse once the Byzantines were gone, 
carrying off the bronze that Constance had gathered there. Although that may not have happened and could just be one of those oh-the-irony moments which the ancient histories love so much. The following year, the main Arab fleet made a feint toward Africa, which lured the Byzantine navy out to catch them, but instead they turned north and headed toward Constantinople. As they entered the Sea of Marmara, the waters between the Hellespont and the capital, they caused a good deal of panic to spread. You can see where all this took place on the map which accompanied episode 46. The men of the Arab fleet captured the town of Sisychus, or Kizikus, as you might say in Greek. As you can see on the map, Kizikus guarded a narrow entrance to a small peninsula, which gave the Muslims an ideal base from which to operate. The wealthy seaside towns on either side of the Marmara were largely undefended. The Roman army watched them closely as they provocatively spent the winter at their new camp. Come spring 671, the fleet did return home. But was this mission a long-range reconnaissance for an eventual siege? Did the discovery of Kizikus encourage Muawiyah's plans? In both 671 and 672, the Syrian army crossed the Taurus Mountains to raid Anatolia. However, they kept their ambitions light. They were merely keeping the Byzantines busy, while Muawiyah oversaw the construction of another fleet. This we know for sure because of what happened next, and this was a significant investment on the part of the Caliph. Navies are very expensive to create and to maintain. They are also highly risky ventures given the unpredictability of the sea and the weather. It seems doubtful that Muawiyah would have spent so much unless he expected a great return. It's worth noting as well that the Caliph was at now at least in his 60s, and if he intended to be the man who brought Islam to Romania, then the clock was ticking. In 673, the navy left Syria and began to establish solid bases on the route to Constantinople. The fleet was split into three, with one group landing in Cilicia, the land between the Taurus Mountains and Antioch. This would be the first base leading out of the Levantine ports. A contingent of the Syrian army marched into Cilicia too, capturing its chief city of Tarsus and other secure points in the area. The next group captured the island of Rhodes. Apparently a force of 10,000 men were to be stationed there to attack any Byzantine shipping coming that way. The Arab sailors set up what looked like a permanent base by establishing areas for grazing animals and growing wheat around their camp. The third group landed near Smyrna, halfway up the Aegean coast of Anatolia, a very concerning sign for the Romans. And where were the Romans, you ask? Much of the shipbuilding for Moawiyah's fleet was being done in Alexandria, and the Byzantine navy was sent there to see if they couldn't destroy the fleet in port. But Moawiyah was building on an epic scale. The Roman navy encountered a detachment off the Egyptian coast and defeated them, but the caliph had more than enough ships already in Anatolian waters for this to change the situation. Just as things begin to get tense and the noose tightens around Constantine's neck, 
our sources diverge wildly on what happened next. In the version which Nicephorus and Theophanes describe, we get the story that you may be expecting, a siege of Constantinople. In this tale, the Arab fleet now heads back to Kizikus and spends the next four summers attacking the capital. The Arab soldiers don't bombard the city walls like the Avars did, but they do ransack the suburbs and keep both the imperial army and navy on edge during each campaigning season. They then spend the winter at their new base, less than a 100 miles from the capital. Pushed into a tight corner by the Arab blockade, the Emperor Constantine is forced to give the go-ahead to a dangerous new weapon. This liquid fire, which has only just been invented, is fitted to the warships of the Imperial fleet and in 677 is put into action. The fire is shot out of siphons and causes such havoc and terror amongst the Arabs that they flee Kizikus and then run into a storm off the coast of Pamphylia, which sends almost all of them to the bottom of the ocean. You may have heard a version of this story, which is widely reported in history books and websites today, and has come to represent the second siege of Constantinople, or, if you like, the first Muslim siege of Constantinople. Unfortunately, there are a number of problems with this story. For a start, why would the Imperial Army and Navy sit back and let an Arab fleet roam around the Sea of Marmara at will? I suppose you could see a situation where the Emperor didn't want to commit his fleet to action in case they lost, leaving the capital exposed. But it seems equally odd that the Navy themselves and the population of the capital would have sat silently by as the Arabs sacked the suburbs. Then you have to question how this blockade would have had any effect on Constantinople. The Arabs were not blocking access to the Bosphorus, so supplies could have reached the capital easily from either the Black Sea or from Anatolia. And finally, there's the question of supplies. For the Arabs to have had a sufficiently large force to keep the Imperial Navy quivering in the harbour, they would have needed hundreds of ships and thousands of men. To keep them all fed every single day for four years would have taken a lot more than the farms of Kizikus could manage. The analysis of historians like James Howard Johnston and others suggests that Nicephorus and Theophanes were equating the experience of the 670s with the very real siege of Constantinople, which took place nearer to their day in 717. The complete lack of any details about what was going on in the capital during this five-year period underlines the flimsy nature of the story. Unfortunately for podcast fans everywhere, this leaves us with a much briefer story that comes from Theophilus of Edessa. He says that all the main action took place in a single year, 674. Having set up their bases, an actual Arab army was landed in Lycia, the shore of Anatolia facing Rhodes. The majority of the large Muslim navy was obviously on hand to ferry them there. Like his father before him, Constantine could see the threat that this build-up presented and ordered the Imperial Navy to attack the Islamic fleet. And the Roman Navy were successful, possibly using fire ships sent toward the Arabs, 
they succeeded in sinking a large part of the fleet and driving the others off. These fire ships would be ships set alight and filled with flammable material rather than the Greek fire that comes from siphons. All the histories agree on what happened next on land. The Arab expeditionary force began besieging local towns, presumably to establish a secure base for further attacks. However, the distracted Arab army was soon surrounded by three of the theme armies who defeated them. Suffering heavy casualties, the expeditionary army was forced to retreat overland now that their ride was at the bottom of the Mediterranean. Although this is a duller story in some ways, it's actually a more positive one from a Byzantine perspective. The theme armies had done what they were intended to do. They prevented any Arab settlement in Anatolia, while the imperial navy had outdone themselves in succeeding where they had failed 20 years earlier at the Battle of the Masts. The account given by Theophilus of Edessa seems more plausible. In our Byzantine stories, the failure of the siege is a big decisive moment which causes Muawiyah to abandon his plans and agree a peace treaty with Constantine. Whereas Theophilus' account sounds more true to life. After all, Muawiyah had no interest in admitting defeat and his losses were not so severe as to dent his overall ambition. In this version, the Arab navy raid Crete the following year, demonstrating their spirit to continue the fight, and they'd make further raids by sea in 675 and 76. Meanwhile, we have reports of Yazid returning to Anatolia with a large force, again perhaps to retaliate for the losses suffered in 674. I'll come to the real reason which forced peace on the Caliph in a moment, but I just wanted to touch on Greek fire, as I'm sure you'll be curious. And I will talk about it in detail when it comes fully into the story in 717. But for now, I agree with historian Mark Witto, who speculates that the destructive role which the substance played in the siege of 717 made a big impression on the population of Constantinople. They viewed this scary device as yet another divine or at least special source of protection for the city. So Theophanes may have invented the story of its creation, or at least moved that story within his narrative to the 670s to give it its own special origin story within the history of God's protection for Constantinople. Anyway, Muawiyah had clearly suffered a setback. And if the caliph was trying to lay the groundwork for the capture of Constantinople, then the events of 674 were a serious blow. However, the reason he asked Constantine for peace in 678 was because of trouble closer to home. For the last few years, Muslim authorities had become aware of local brigands who operated out of Mount Amanus. Mount Amanus is the small range which overlooks Antioch and acts like the southern wall of Cilicia, with the Taurus Mountains being the northern wall. I know some of you will not be following that last sentence, but it's all on the map that accompanied episode 11, but is probably quicker to find on Facebook. The point is that these brigands had decided that Muslim rule was light enough in that area that they could live in hiding in the mountains and rush down either into the area around Antioch, 
or into Cilicia itself to steal and raid from the local populations, most of whom were Christians, it should be pointed out. When Muawiyah's forces occupied Cilicia more fully during the build-up to the siege, the brigands had been forced to target only the areas around Antioch. They had grown so bold that they had actually spread out to the nearest mountain to the south as well, Mount Lebanon. By attacking local farms and businesses, the brigands attracted a lot of attention and disrupted the local economy. And so, like Spartacus before them, slaves and other discontented workers began to flee their homes and join the rebel group. Most interestingly for our story, so did Byzantine prisoners, or more accurately, deserters. In fact, there's a good hypothesis that Saborius's men, the ones who had been settled in the area by Muawiyah, were amongst the ringleaders. If true, then former imperial troops were now loose in the Syrian countryside, and there were real fears amongst the caliphs in a circle that there was potential for a general Christian uprising against Arab rule. These brigands were known to the Romans as the Madraites, or Mardites, as you might read it off the page in English. This word is a Greek version of a Syriac word meaning rebel, but another term used to describe them translates into Greek as deserter, seeming to confirm that both sides understood who the men were leading these Matraites. With dangers surrounding him and his own end approaching, Muawiyah asked Constantine for a peace treaty. The emperor was happy to agree terms which were, once again, generous to the Romans. As long as the peace held, they were to receive 3,000 pounds of gold, 50 slaves and 50 horses a year. Arab troops were also to withdraw from the islands. Next time, we'll see what Constantine does with the peace that he earned. I know it's been something of a non-episode discussing a siege which didn't really happen. However, I hope that gaining an insight into how the story of the past comes together will be some consolation. We end this episode in the year 679, and for narrative reasons, the century will actually end, as far as we're concerned, in 695. So if you have any questions about the 7th century, do send them in now. We've already had a good chunk come in, but I don't want you to miss out, and I want you to ask absolutely anything that you're curious about. Send them to me at thehistoryofbyzantium at gmail.com or post them at thehistoryofbyzantium.com or on Facebook or tweet me at ByzantiumCast. Thank you so much to those who've sent in iTunes reviews. It remains the best free way to help keep the podcast going. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365 day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade.
Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. 